now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Dunham. You know, I think I think that might be a little bit too upbeat as an intro after that quote, but you know what, we'll carry on. As listeners know, we're exploring ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership and all things in between. This week we were, well actually last week we went to see a film. And for those of you who are familiar with recent history, uh, in this case it's uh, World War II vintage or Second World War vintage, you may well already have had a hint about the topic we wanted to touch on. But before I go any further, Gareth, what what got you interested? Because this was one that I know you were keen to explore. Um, what are we going to talk about and what what made you so interested in it? Well, there's clearly a lot of hype at the moment about the new film Oppenheimer. And we have both been to see it. In fact, we went to see it together. And it created a whole load of conversation, not just about the movie, but also about the wider subject of Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. And we decided in our discussion that this would be a particularly good topic to sort of explore subjects around strategy, around leadership, around management of large and complex problems, uh, as well as a little bit of exploring the difficulties in a large project that has moral hazard. I think I would leave that there for now. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's interesting. And I, w- there's a number of factors about this that I think are not just about some of those topics, but also the story people tell about it. So yeah. we've just yeah. seen a film about Oppenheimer, which is obviously there for dramatic gratification and entertainment. And and you, you we I sort of walked away going, that was really interesting. Uh, how how true to life was it? Obviously, there's a bit of dramatic license in there, but also what are the stories that we did that weren't told? And of course, you can't tell them in the film. But how much you know? M- maybe a good place to start though for the one person on the planet that actually doesn't know what Oppenheimer is about, or more importantly doesn't know about the project that was underpinned by it. Gareth, let's go back and do our basic world history. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, what was it all about? How did it come about? There's an interesting conversation we had about Oppenheimer himself, and and there's a reason we haven't done this as an influencers episode where we've looked at the leadership lessons of Robert Oppenheimer because there's a much, much wider part to this. And of course, that is the Manhattan Project, which was the American, Canadian and British collaborative effort initially to beat the Germans at creating the atomic bomb. Hence the moral hazard and hence the quote about destroying worlds, which is uh, a very, very famous quote that Oppenheimer is often quoted uh, as having said. I think we discussed the idea of potentially delving into the leadership of Robert Oppenheimer uh, and decided that there was far more to explore in the in the Manhattan Project, which I don't think the film and rightly so, because the film is, you know, clearly concentrating on the story of Oppenheimer himself. But there's, there's so much the film doesn't cover. And whilst it's current in people's minds and there's lots of discussions about it, it just seems particularly relevant. The initial idea for a bomb to be made out of the splitting of the atom, fission, 
was first actually understood in a German university in 1936, but wasn't really seriously considered as a practical thing because, and, and this is where my knowledge of particle physics is slightly sketchy, but... Are we allowed to have a weak knowledge of particle physics on this podcast? Well, it, my, my particle physics is better than my quantum theory, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. But effectively, the atom that you need to split, or that is easiest to split and had been discovered as releasing all this energy because of Einstein's theory of E equals MC squared, was uranium-235, I think, which doesn't naturally occur in abundance. It's one in a thousand or something of the particles in raw mined uranium. And so what happens is if you fire a neutron at a particle of uranium-235, the particle, uh, sorry, the atom splits and it releases a vast amount of energy because we have released some of its mass. And because of Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. The speed of light is a really massive number. So if you square it, you get an even bigger number. And basically, you get this burst of energy, but you also get two neutrons released from that initial atom. And so what you end up with is the ability to have a chain reaction. And that's the theory behind this bomb. So you create this massive amount of energy, but you also split a further two atoms. The problem is, of course, if there's only one atom in a thousand that is capable of doing this, the chances of your neutrons going on to hit those are negligible. And so you don't get that chain reaction. And so it was only much later when people started thinking about enrichment processes that it got seriously considered. And it started with the British. So the British had a program in the early stages of the war called Tube Alloys, which was the code name for the research into the atomic bomb that eventually got wrapped up into the American program because at a slightly later time in the war, the Americans had the capacity, the money, and the space in order to do this. And so the British contributed all of their capability, all of their scientists, and the Manhattan Project was established. And in fact, for any Canadian listeners, in fact, we know we've got Canadian listeners, a tube alloy was both, it was a joint Canadian-English project. So there were Canadian... Yes. Yeah, that, that's very true. And, and the main contributors to both tube alloys, obviously Canadian, uh, British and Manhattan, Canadian, British, American, actually spanned further than that because we had a whole load of scientists from all over the world who were collaborating against the evil of the Nazi, Nazi regime. And interestingly, a lot of German scientists who were of Jewish descent or were Jewish, who clearly had had to leave Germany, had a hatred of the Nazi regime and were quite willing to collaborate. So although we say it was British, Canadian, American, it was a more global effort than that. Splitting the atom, lots of energy, brackets, bomb. I think one of the things that I certainly, as I you know, grew up and learned more about this, missed for a significant period was just how big this project was. And you know, if you watch, if you watch the film, which by the way, I thought was 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 really interesting and entertaining. I oh, actually this isn't a film review podcast, but it was. It didn't feel like three hours, but you, if you watch the film, 
you could have been forgiven for thinking there was about 150 people involved in this. There was this small little town that they built out in Los Alamos and all this kind of thing. Actually, this was an astoundingly large project. In fact, you know, there's there's nearly, I think the number's around 120, 130,000 people working on this. And just think about that, 130,000 people. And the cost back in the war was $2 billion. I think this is a regular conversation I think you and I have, which is arguably that was the most expensive project in World War II. But I think the Norden bomb site came quite close or was there or thereabouts. But in modern money, from 1943 until they they detonated the test weapon and then the, the ones they used for real, $22 billion in current money. Yeah, big, big project, especially when you consider that a lot of this was theoretical. There was a huge amount of money being put into a project that no one really knew whether it could be done. There was a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic because what we effectively had as a driver was we can't allow the Germans to get there first. And with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we, we know that they were, they were much further than, behind them than we possibly thought. But there was this massive gamble that was worth taking because if it was possible, we had to be there first. Um, and I think there's a really interesting dynamic there when you abstract away from the Manhattan Project itself to the wider decision-making about the war effort of justifying the allocation of resource at a time where you are also sending thousands of young men to their death. You're trying to balance all of these different competing requirements to keep feeding the people of Britain who are effectively being besieged by German U-boats. You're having to build massive amounts of shipping. You're preparing for the invasion of Europe in June 44. You're running ammunition development, ammunition production on a massive scale. We've talked in the past about the, the massive militarization of the scale of the US state. And it it just strikes me as a really incredible thing that this was recognized, albeit theoretical, as being so important that they would allocate so much resource to it. So there's, there's a really interesting juxtaposition there. So the, the fact that there, there were people who said, we have this many people, we have this much money, we have these this many resources, where will, where will we invest our resources best? So, yeah, I mean, as I said, 130,000 people, notionally, you could have 130,000 people pick up a rifle and go and shoot. So really, really difficult and interesting conversation around how do you make those decisions? And actually, arguably, we have no idea who made those decisions someone in a room would have sat down with the equivalent of a spreadsheet or a piece of paper and started to say, well, how much steel do we have? How many people do we have? And you compare that to the where we started, which is Oppenheimer is a film where we're talking about this great leader. Great leaders in our world, there are some who we have heard about and there are many, many, many more who we've never heard of who made arguably some of the most important decisions and were the were perhaps the most important leaders we might have. Yeah, absolutely. And the the second person who I think comes across in the film as being instrumental to the success of this project is obviously General Groves. 
who was a Corps of Engineers general. He'd already been instrumental in developing key infrastructure projects for the weaponization of the US state. He uh, oversaw the building project of the Pentagon, but loads of other stuff as well. He had over a million people under his project management. I, 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 I'm not going to say under his command because he didn't, not in that sense, but un over a million people under his project management and was overseeing the vast construction projects that involved the military, it involved industry, it involved the populations, like they moved towns in order to do some of these things. And so if you just take Los Alamos, which is clearly the, the best known piece of the Manhattan jigsaw, that alone is a massive engineering feat before you even start to look at the building of the bomb. But that's just one piece of a many-piece project across the whole of the United States, Canada, Britain, and other parts of the world. So when you look at things like the current HS2 program, which is relatively small in infrastructure terms compared to some of these things, and then you look at the overruns in time and budget, I think they're clearly we're comparing apples and oranges, but I think there is definitely something about the imperatives in a nation that is at war, especially with the Manhattan Project, where it's a race against the building of such a decisive, devastating capability that clears away perhaps some of the clutter that fogs up current infrastructure projects. Well, I mean, it's before we started this, you sort of, we said, what? Well, how are we going to approach this? And you smiled. And I, I don't know whether you can recreate your, why is this interesting from a leadership perspective? What are the factors? And I, I thought you did a really good summary. So it'll never be as good the second time, but. Well, I wrote down when I started to think about this as a potential subject, what, what I thought was all the things that made it interesting. And for me, the Manhattan Project is the confluence of politics, science, technology, espionage, military planning, security, leadership, management, command, strategy, tactics, engineering, ethics, morality, and philosophy. And for those of you that have listened to the podcast you know, up until this point, you'll know many of those subjects are things that you and I find particularly interesting especially when they interact with each other. So, I mean, my wife turned to me at the end of the film as we walked out of the, the cinema and said, I bet you loved that, because that was a film about all your favourite things. And I went, I did. I thought it was brilliant. And I was buzzing because it, you know, it's starting to explore and unpack these really complex subjects. But it's, it's I mean, and, and as you, you say it like that, it shouldn't have worked. You know, HS2 is over budget many years and yet this was far more complex far larger scale and never been done before no and never one has ever done it well and, and and i mean if we sort of we we talk a bit about robert oppenheimer again this isn't an influencer about robert oppenheimer but if you said to me who would you lead as your project director and and while i think it you know, it seems odd to me that there's 120,000 people and yet we're, we're, we're focused on the one person. 
that said, that one person clearly had a very important impact and particularly on the scientist part of things. But if you if you go back and say, if you were a general in the US Army and you wanted someone to run this project, the idea that you would pick a scientist, clearly for the scientific knowledge, but in terms of recruiting, managing, motivating, getting people going. And this was something that the film talks about, but also outside of the film, people have talked about Oppenheimer, where it turns out he was the right man for the job. He, But not obviously. And actually, yeah. I think the film actually does a really good job. And it's a Christopher Nolan film, so it's no surprise that it does a really good job of showing the individual personalities and why they work. But the credit has to go to, to General Groves for using his intuition, his experience, having run lots of projects before, to effectively overrule the conventional wisdom, which was Oppenheimer is definitely not the right kind of person to run this project. But for three main reasons. One, he was a theoretical physicist, and this is all about a practical project to actually produce a capability. Now, there's plenty of arguments to say why well, you need a theoretical physicist at the central core of the, of the running of this operation, but potentially not as the project director. Secondly, he was quite a strange character and hadn't got any previous experience of management, let alone massive infrastructure project management across multiple sites all done in absolute secrecy and a race against the enemy. No experience at all of this. He had spent his entire life up until that point as, a, as an academic working in universities. And then thirdly, he's a massive security risk because although his allegiance to the war effort, his sort of contempt of the Nazi regime was unquestionable, Oppenheimer himself being a, a Jew, and you know, fully committed to destruction of or, or the war effort against Nazi Germany, he was also a bit left-wing and, and had previously flirted with the idea of being in the Communist Party. He never actually joined the Communist Party, but he had lots of friends and relations who did and was already on several security kind of watch lists. And so straight away, this shouldn't have happened. Like General Graves is a military man, you know, at a time where, yes, the war's against Germany, but there's a wider strategic piece about the Soviets and making sure that we keep them at arm's length and we absolutely don't want them to have the bomb. Let's get somebody who's flirted with communism in to run the project. I mean, there's. I think we'll we'll veer towards now, sort of some of those those specific areas. And and the the first one that occurs to me is General Groves. Maybe this is too much of a generalization. We over the many podcasts we've done, the many episodes we've done, we've we've talked about. Maybe we don't call them rules, but guidelines. And we have sort of said, ah, the people who say the guidelines don't apply to me, these are some of the crazy people, and it doesn't work out well for me. How? I mean, I guess unless we can get a time machine and go there and buy him a drink and ask him that what an interesting thing where, to your point, on paper, Robert Oppenheimer was a terrible person to recruit for this. 
And yet, you know, what Robert Groves had to think about on paper, this is a terrible idea, but I would imagine, I'm guessing, I have a hunch he is the right person. There's a couple of things which are distinctly true. He's this very clever physicist. He understands this stuff. He, you know, there is some element of leadership about him. But beyond that, Robert Groves shouldn't have picked him. I mean, mm. he should. He was the right person. But I I would love to be a fly on that wall to understand that choice. But it it maybe the underlying point for us, which is pick the right people. And absolutely. This this is a a classic example of a complex system. And we you talked earlier about, you know, was there somebody with a spreadsheet working out how much to, to allocate to this? And I don't think there was. I don't think there was somebody doing doing that to that level of bean counting because what we're talking about here is a complex system. We're talking about a a culture. US, the Western way of war, the confluence of all of these things that emerges as a need to support this particular project in a particular way. And I think General Grove's approach to picking Oppenheimer in a very similar way is recognizing that this is not a complicated problem where you can just analyze it, come up with the solution, and then enact that solution. You need to see the relationship between the the hard physics and maths and engineering and all of the complicated stuff and then the people and the morality and the inspiration that is needed to drive people to do this and that is a complex thing and therefore there isn't a template and i think what General Groves probably had, and like you say, we can't prove this, but General Groves had worked in complex problems. And what he, I'm assuming now, saw in Oppenheimer was somebody that was technically capable, had that professional knowledge, had also the kudos and the standing within the academic community such that he would be able to drive and lead this team but was also a personable person who would drive this problem set, this project, through his own personality rather than a technocrat and yeah. physicist. It's an interesting thought for all of us, which is if you, if you had to turn around tomorrow and pick a leader for a project without picking you know, the person who reports to you or the person on your team, who would you pick? Because there's an element here of how much did Groves really know whether Oppenheim would be successful or not. And so therefore there's this thing of how do we as leaders pick someone when it's not the obvious choice? It's not like Oppenheimer had yeah. done this five times before. Of course, he was the choice. In this case, he'd never done it before. He'd never done that role before. He'd never worked for Groves before. And as you say, there's those risks. So I so I, I suspect this is a way of framing the problem. Um, and I think this is, for me, this is the real lesson of this. Is I would like to live in a world of black and white. So I'd like to live in a world yeah. where things are clear and there is a right choice and a wrong choice. But actually, this project was complex. And so it wasn't a question of, is Oppenheimer the right man for the job? This is a question of, do I have confidence in the abilities and attributes of this person to allow the creativity of a big, complex beast to nudge towards 
getting to the solution, which is a very odd way of talking about something that is based on very, very hard theoretical physics. But actually, there's lots of problem solving that is yet to even be conceived, let alone the solution known about. And so it's more important to have the right person than it is the right brain. Well, and and another way of saying this is, can I find someone with the potential to be successful in a project like this? Because there was no one else that had a project. I mean, wouldn't it be fascinating to go back to speak to Groves and say to him quietly, did you ever doubt yourself? Did you have other people you chose? All those kinds of things. But there you go. Fascinating. Let's take a quick break. But what I wanted to do after the break, because there's um, a, a factor which is a little unusual i think from a leadership angle that we don't talk about as much and that's the moral angle given that i think there were lots of people involved in the project with a very clear sense of morality so let's take a quick break and um maybe let's delve into morality and how that applies to leadership and particularly in this particular particularly in this particular case you know what i mean yeah wonderful right see you after the break Welcome back. Just for the break, we talked about what the Manhattan Project was. We talk about the roles of some of the key players, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the project director, and General Groves, who was sort of the military man driving these things. I don't know that we necessarily came to any answers or any brilliant things to tease out, but just this challenge of finding the right people for the job, particularly when that job has never been done in uncertainty. But just just before we left, we talked about wanting to delve into the morality, and I I think there's a number of dimensions around this morality. So the the first one for me, and you 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 touched on this at the very beginning of the episode, was a group of people building the most powerful weapon that had ever been known to mankind. And I think the film did quite a nice job of capturing the the, the juxtaposition of that, where, as you say, and and this was said in the film, and I'm sure this was taken from the individuals involved, this was an existential threat. Many of the scientists were Jewish and had direct experience of their family, friends, and colleagues being targeted and more likely dying. And so the first thing was this idea that where there is this moral question, people were able to put it to one side. And the way the film portrayed it was at the beginning, it was almost easier to put that to one side. And as time went on, which I suspect might've been a narrative device of the film, there was more concern about it. But I think Robert Oppenheimer certainly became famous in later life to be more concerned about this. But I thought that was particularly interesting. And, and maybe maybe this isn't the right phrase about disagreeing and committing. I, th- I think it's worth recognising that we now live, yeah, and everybody listening to this, has grown up in a world where nuclear weapons exist. That was a choice that humanity made. And at the time, that was a choice that the people on the Manhattan Project were instrumental in making. And whilst the the counter-argument of, well, the Germans are evil, and this is about defeating evil, is 
probably a a very strong argument for why many people were committed to to this in the early stages it's also worth recognizing that everybody who had the scientific insight to understand what they were doing and, and let's be honest in the 130,000 people on the project well, most okay. probably 95 percent of them weren't even aware of what the end result was let alone you know fully understood it but a lot of people did because you only needed you know degree level physics undergrad sort of level physics to to have a, a sense of where they were going with this but those who did were tackling the problem of yes we are working towards something that may end the war or will certainly counter the germans ever using this weapon of mass destruction but ultimately we're also unleashing this capability on the world and it was already known for those who understand nuclear physics it was already known that the next step that was possible is once you've got enough power to do fission you can split the atom you now have the way of creating enough power quickly enough to fuse atoms fusion which which turns a atomic bomb into a thermonuclear bomb which is orders of magnitude again more powerful so whilst the atomic bomb was capable of devastating towns and cities thermonuclear weapons would be enough and powerful enough to end the world so a huge amount of moral hazard in just the pursuit of unleashing this power really complex stuff wrapped up in the fact that we're in the middle of this world war there's this evil happening we had a sense of what the germans were doing to to the jewish community and, and others in the holocaust we didn't know the details of course but we have a sense of this happening and where does it end and how do you stop this well there was also another piece to it as well which was the same people realized that this weapon this technology would unlock a weapon, but it would also unlock the ability to create enormous amounts of energy, a positive good. So it, it feels yeah. to me that there's a real, a really challenging mix of negatives and positives. Mm. And to the point made underlined by a very clear and existential danger, either to the United States and, and the allies or, or to a particular race, in this case, the sort of the, 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 the Jews and, and how they were being persecuted. One of the challenging things about this particular episode is that we weren't there. And so I, I think no. what we can do is peck at the side. But what I do want to do, though, is and I I don't know whether this has been the same for you is how have you tackled some of these moral challenges? So, you know, you, you, you've done your counter piracy stuff mm. uh, in Afghanistan. You would go with weapons. You would call in airstrikes. And of course, there's a moral component there that said, innocent people could be killed not obviously on purpose how did you process that and think about that both as a an individual but also as a leader who had to shepherd yeah. through this process i, I think there's, there's, there's perhaps danger in you know conflating the development of atomic weapons with the decisions of a of a junior commander in, in the military but i suppose you are still talking about you know making decisions that are ultimately going to put people in harm's way or get people killed sometimes very deliberately and in this case i think the bit that i was homing in on was 
if this is about combatants, you all know this, you all know that's what you're there for. Yeah. The one which is the, the family that are living in that shack and haven't got out of the way. So yeah, how, how did you think about this? Did you? So I yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if you are not thinking about these things, if you are doing, you know, the putting to one side, putting it out of your mind, then you are failing in your responsibility as a leader because these things are deeply subjective and they are deeply personal and you have to recognize that the the moral decision that you make you go through a different process to those people that you are asking to do things that are potentially harmful that are potentially going to lead to people getting killed um, you're also asking people to put themselves in harm's way and your justification for it might be different to their justification so i think you have to think about these things you have to understand that these are complex problems and there isn't a black and white right and wrong answer to them and then you have to find the common ground so as a as a leader and i've reflected on this i think a lot growing up and spending time thinking about how I did things. I'm not sure I thought about it in these terms when I was a junior commander on combat operations, but the relationship you build with your team, the understanding of the people you have allows you to then understand or at least have empathy for how they might be feeling, what they might be considering, what they might be struggling with. Building those relationships and allowing people to discuss these problems is really really important and then when it comes to doing the job being able to put yourself in the position of showing that you are also making these difficult decisions is fundamental to making sure that everybody else follows so i think in the film christopher nolan does a really really good job of showing the moral dilemma that Oppenheimer goes through and then the decisions he makes to show through his personal commitment to the project through his and, and I from everything I've read about Oppenheimer since I think you know this is this is true to to our collective record of him you know he he led people by being part of the project by showing people the vulnerability to those problems rather than just putting it to one side and and I think when I was in Afghanistan, and it, Afghanistan, I think, was more morally difficult than the counter-piracy, largely because in Afghanistan, we deliberately went out to try and kill people at times. And there is a lot more subjectivity about why somebody is an enemy, rather than counter-piracy, it was more of a stopping criminality thing. And I think what was really, really important was whenever there was jeopardy, whenever there was moral hazard, being at the front, and I don't mean physically, I don't mean always being, you know, the front of the platoon, the person who's going to tread on the device, but being at the front of the decision making. So if you're going to go out to draw out the enemy's fire in order to find where they are, you know, we do that. If that was the decision, then being the first person to say, I am with the section that's going to do that. We're going to go out, we are going to draw out the enemy's fire rather than 
you are going to go out and draw the analyst fire. So being at the forefront of the, the difficulty in the decision, I think recognising that it is a subjective thing and therefore being open to the conversation, but very, very clear about where that conversation stops and the decision is made. There's a, there's a real risk here that people listening to this feel that we're slipping into just a bit of moral philosophy of right or wrong. But I think there's an extra dimension which demonstrates why there are hard and real consequences, which is if we go back to our old friend Adair and his balls, I think we can't go more than a couple of episodes without mentioning his balls, team, task and individual. We, when we first, when we've talked about this in other episodes, I don't think we've touched on the moral component, but I, I think it frames that moral component really well. We have a mission. Yeah. The mission is really important. The result of the mission and the things we might have to do on the way to the mission are morally difficult. Now you put this in the context of team, task, and individual. Okay, what is the mission? What is the task? Well, it might not be pleasant and people, yeah. many people might die, but this is the most important thing because it is going to save many, many more lives and there's an existential threat. In team, I have to think about keeping the team together. Excellent discussions in the, in the film about um, the unionization of the lab earlier. And so, you, you know, you have to keep the team together and you have to lead the team. You've got a bunch of people with different views. And again, this moral component, which across the team must have been very, very difficult. And then individuals who have very strong views. And in the film, they talk about Teller with a very strong view. That yeah. I think, so rather than this just being this theoretical academic discussion about how hard mor morality is and how it impacts decisions. Now put yourself in this place. Now say all of this is true to a significant extreme. We're not just talking about a person might die. We are yeah. saying 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, and not just in the initial explosion, but then of course we recognize there is radiation. I think that shows how this was an even harder decision, an even harder thing. And you, you, I, I think it's dangerous to say the word admire Oppenheimer. I don't know whether this is a matter of, uh, of admiring, but perhaps respect the challenges that he, his team and his people faced to go do that. And we, we certainly see that later in the film, and I'm sure that was true in real life. Well, I think there's a really fascinating moment in the film where post-bombing of Japan, Oppenheimer goes to see Truman and is in the Oval Office and Oppenheimer is talking about the difficulty and the guilt and the weight of the problem set. And, and part of this is in his drive to convince the Americans not to follow through with the development of the fusion bomb, the thermonuclear weapons, but also, I think, just grappling with this moral dilemma that you know, he has had to go through. And, and there's a bit that I, I subsequently, after the film, I was really interested in and sort of looked it up. And it, Christopher Nolan has sort of completed several incidents that happened into one scene. And there's a bit of creative license there. But Oppenheimer says, I've got blood on my hands. And Truman gets a handkerchief out and gives it to him as a gesture of kind of, we'll wipe it off. And you hear that, that actually happened. And there's two ways of interpreting that. There is the, you don't 
have that problem, you were just part of a much, much wider team. You, we politically as a nation made that decision. And it's almost a, a sort of thoughtful process of I'm taking the responsibility off you. And then there's the way it's depicted in the film where it's almost sarcastic and it's almost not acknowledging the difficulty that Oppenheimer went through because Truman's effectively saying, well, you were just a scientist. You know, this was a military, this was a strategic decision. What, and, and, and then you see him call him a, a crybaby, um, which he did in, in letters. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, there's a lesson, which, which is it ties into the moral component. And I suspect Oppenheimer had a handle on, which is empathy for other people. The idea yeah. he would say to this man, who arguably was the pivotal person to create this devastating weapon, to then call them a crybaby, says that that is not a useful or helpful thing and frankly doesn't say very yeah. much. Yeah, and it, it, it completely contrasts with another bit where there is concern over the fact that Halfway through this project, and we can we can explore this in a, in a moment as well, well, the defeat of Germany happens, and this switches to, we are now developing the bomb to end the war in the East. This is about bringing Japan to their knees and bringing them to surrender. And a lot of the scientists are concerned that that's not what they signed up for. That's not what this is about. This was about stopping the Germans from getting there first. Well, the Germans are now defeated. And Oppenheimer when discussing with the scientists their their concerns about the morality says our job is just to design it our job is to to work through this project and to come up with the solution it's then for the military and the politicians to work out how to use it and it's he's effectively saying the same thing as truman but he's saying it in a way that says i'm absolving you of some of the responsibility you feel because this is a shared endeavor Whereas Truman is portrayed as just being an arrogant Quinzo yeah. who who just doesn't have any empathy at all. And I thought that was a really interesting contrast. And I, as as we talk about this, and I, I appreciate in lots of other episodes, we have stronger views about right and wrong and how you might do things. I think this one's much trickier. You know, we weren't we weren't mm. there, we weren't close to it there was lots of ambiguity and so it's very difficult. But for me, the big thing is, I think as a leader, part of that job is to reflect and to think about what you do. So there's yeah. the instinctive leadership of I walk in the office and something happens, how do I deal with it? Or I need to promote someone or I need to, all these things which are, for want of a better word, instinctive. I think what's what sort of triggered this for us is thinking about it as leaders who haven't had to do these things what would we do? What do we like, not like, you know, the empathy one, I think is a really good example, which is that I would hope that's not the thing I would do, but taking the example of Oppenheimer, absolving people of that guilt, that's something that a leader does that's really well. Um, yeah. And, and the result of that, of course, is that he, he brings everybody down from, you know, they're at the brink of effectively mutiny and revolt and he brings them down and brings them back into the project. And that empathy is, is vital to that. So that's really important. I think it's worth sort of exploring that the what do you do when the situation changes? Because the the war in Europe was, was over and now suddenly it's the war in Japan. So all of those reasons, all of the 
wider context of the problem now changes and now you know like say hindsight's a really difficult thing from which to judge the actual decisions that are made but i think there's an interesting question about you know, when you're working on a project like this and fundamentally situation around you changes how do you keep people going how do you keep keep driving people towards that strategic goal i mean it's a great question i get the sense from oppenheimer and more broadly you know how you know you and i both have had experience of this which is it's about trust and credibility and and honesty as well again i i can't vouch for how they did it in the manhattan project but there is an element of in that particular case there is already clear evidence of many many people dying in the the eastern theaters and the assumption was this would only end when they invaded the the japanese home islands and some fascinating books if ever you if 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 you're interested in the history about how the americans felt an invasion of the japanese home islands would go the us military felt this potentially was a million soldiers would die i mean it was catastrophic numbers they yeah. were assuming this was based so I can imagine that the, you, you're honest, you explain the new situation. It's interesting, I can only sort of say for myself, and, and to be fair, I am tainted by hindsight knowledge of other things. Actually, that seems like a reasonable use given that context. And 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 maybe maybe a good bit of historical context. This is a fact that I think very few people know. Fewer people died in the atomic attacks than they did in the firebombing of Tokyo. So there was already other moral judgments about the killing of civilians in order to prevent the death of American and allied soldiers. But um, I I think you're absolutely right. It's as you asked the question about how do you maintain people on a mission when the mission has changed? The other question, of course, is at what point does it become sunk cost fallacy? Going back to a few (laughs) weeks ago, we talked about Leonard Cheshire and a really, really interesting comment from Cheshire was that I hope the war isn't over before we can drop this bomb. What an interesting mm. odd statement, which is I, I I am interested in the outcome of this attack, even though it will be the expense of many, many lives, you know, winding that back to the, the Manhattan uh, project sunk cost fallacy. Well, we've built a bomb. We better use it kind of a yeah thing. your your wording there was quite interesting when you said you know what how do you keep people going when the mission changes whereas what i said was how do you keep the mission going when the external circumstances change and i think that's quite important because the mission didn't change not not for the manhattan project the yeah, mission yeah. still developed the atomic bomb strategic context changed the the wider mission for the allies had changed how the bomb would be used had changed but for the manhattan project the mission remained the same the external context the external environment had changed and i think that's interesting because you don't get stuck into a sunk cost fallacy if the mission is still valid even if the circumstances around that mission have changed but that's a very hard question you have to ask that's a very deep question you have to ask and it's a strategic question once you build a weapon, people want to use the weapon. I can't back that up, but there is this weird thing that if you build it, people want to use it. There's a there's absolutely a... yeah. The military, especially when you give them capability, are going to want to use it. 
And I think we, we've looked at the uh, project management and decision making of General Groves. We've looked at the leadership and charisma of Oppenheimer. I think it's now worth bringing this up and looking at the strategic decision making of the US government, because there's some fascinating challenges that they're they're faced with when they're given this capability. You know, the, the Trinity test works and it is literally at the last minute. In fact, they bring the test forward so that they can announce it at a at a summit and let the Russians know that they've got this capability. And now you're left with this problem of, I have this, do I use it? And if I use it, where do I use it? What do I use it on? And these are really difficult problems. And you've already alluded to the, the estimates of casualties for the invasion of the home islands of Japan. We've talked about the incredible effort to get the war in the Pacific to where it was and the incredible cost in both gold and blood, you're given this capability that and might, might might end the war. How do you use it? What a decision and how do they do that? You know, again, this it sounds very distant when you say things like this, it's someone else's problem. This is something which I'd heard, I, I believe is correct, that US military has a thing called a purple heart. And the Purple Heart is awarded to people who are wounded. Yeah. At the end of the Second World War, pre the invasion of the home islands, the US military manufactured an enormous number of Purple Hearts to the degree, and I, someone will, will message me and tell me I'm wrong now for this, but they are still using those Purple Hearts today. So think, think about that. Think about that, how far away we are and How many casualties we've had in wars since Afghanistan, Korea, Vietnam, the, the assumption Asia, was Panama, that... Iraq the first time, Iraq the second time, all of the special forces operations, like all of those, and they still haven't run out of Purple Hearts because of the injuries and casualties they were expecting for the invasion of Japan. And so you now put that into that wow. strategic... I, I think it gives a little bit of context for... Why would they do something as terrible as this? That's why they would do something as terrible as this. In fact, whether or not they think about it in terms of being terrible or not, your job is to stop the death of hundreds of thousands of young Americans. What would you do to achieve that goal? And then and then you flip it. And this was something that was in the film. And I, I would imagine there is some truth in this, but um, th this struck me as challenging there was a discussion about the targets so yeah. they created these two weapons they recognized they only had two weapons so they had to use them in a way that would would lead to the best outcome i.e the yeah. surrender of the japanese and in in the film they talk about the fact that they're, they're discussing 20 20 cities and of course not all of them were big enough that was a consideration they had to be big enough or not to kill enough civilians to make the impact big enough that surrender becomes a viable option for Japan. I mean, just saying that out loud is pretty horrifying. Well, as a as a leader, good or bad, imagine that's that's your job today. But in wow. the, in 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 it, 
I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Truman, but was it a, a general or a senator? I think it was, no, it was a... one of it was one of the uh, secretaries of state. I think I don't. I can't remember. And, and he looked through uh, the list and said, "Gentlemen, I'm looking through the list. We need to find two places. Oh, I've just seen Kyoto is there. Let's not bomb Kyoto because it's a beautiful ancient city." And then there was a small chuckle, and I went on honeymoon with my wife. And you think amongst all this difficult leadership and all these deathly serious decisions to be made, human beings are involved. And a person says, oh, I quite like that place. Let's not bomb it. I I I have a personal connection and therefore, yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? I think um, they ruled out a target because of its cultural significance. uh, And that kind of, I guess, counterbalances that and says there is some rationale. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, somebody has to make a decision that is going to have profound ramifications in it and, and consequences on hundreds of thousands of other people. Yeah, God, I'm, I'm so glad that I don't have to do that. I'm never going to be close to anything like that as a decision to make. Well, first of all, I entirely agree with you. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of leadership situations, either ones we've been involved in or theoretical ones. And you like you i think we should all be grateful we're not there but on the other hand the flip side is if someone said to me you know chris we're going to put you in a time machine and we're going to put you in this role i wonder whether it comes back to all the things we've talked about at the basics you know do a difficult job almost forgetting that it's a difficult job build a great yeah, i wonder i think we've talked about this before and we are going to do an entire episode on the loneliness of command but I think something like this, a decision that's going to have such profound negative consequences on others, is going to weigh heavy. And I wonder if that kind of idea of, well, I'm ruling that out because I went on honeymoon there, is, a, is an act of personal protection in that you're making a difficult decision easier because of a very, very simple personal connection, not the callous way that it comes across as, I don't mind bombing other places because, you know, I honeymoon there and it's beautiful, which feels deeply uncomfortable. But I wonder if it's an act of self-protection because you're going to have to live with these decisions. So the easier you can make it in your own mind, the easier it's going to be to live with. Definitely suspect there's an element of truth there. You know, in the the military, the military is known for its gallows humour. Yeah. And while people have never experienced this, say, how can you joke about Bob, when you step on the mine, can I have your stuff? Actually, again, I think that is an example at the heart of things about self-protection to one level at one level and, and sort of trust. Well, look, I, I think at one level, this has been incredibly unsatisfying because I don't think we have any good answers for how we can apply this in our day-to-day life. But on the other hand, for me, this is more satisfying because it starts to get you to think really carefully about some of these things which are very difficult and actually hard to track, as it were. What were your big takeaways? I mean, not just from the film and the topic, but at the high level around these leadership topics around something as big as the Manhattan Project and the ideas inside it. Yeah, for me, there's two things. One is that careful balance of hard knowledge the technical skill in, in Oppenheimer's case, it's the, the theoretical physics that clearly allow him to be a candidate. In Grove's case, it's the experience of having done big infrastructure projects in the past. 
combined with that softer sociological human aspect to being good at the job and in Oppenheimer's case that's being charismatic it's about leading by doing by being seen to be making the difficult decisions by engaging and tackling the difficult problems that other people are having so it's that combination and in Grove's case of course it's the military man lots of experience running big infrastructure projects big budgets lots of power and yet going with somebody that he knows is got the right charismatic traits to pull this project together and find the way through so i think that is a huge aspect and the second thing is where you're talking about complex problems the recognition that you are part of a bigger system and whether you're truman oppenheimer grove a production worker in one of the facilities a soldier in japan there is always other people making other decisions that you need to empathize with that you need to understand and you need to recognize firstly to make better decisions yourself about the consequences of what's going to happen but also to understand and empathize with that wider community of people so i think those are the two takeaways for me quite unsatisfying discussion about a really complicated project, project. well i mean and, and for me i'll i'll pick up on i think the the empathy one there this is particularly important in this case it is not straightforward it is not routine empathy for a very difficult situation is important and then sort of extending from that something which must have been true given the scale and complexity was the importance of good communication and in in Oppenheimer's case the ability to persuade and keep people going I think those and they're all really basic skills empathy communication persuasion and then the other one that tied into it as well was that sense of mission because it really feels to me that Oppenheimer brought a real sense of mission the value and importance of what they were doing in the face of all the things we've talked about but really fascinating topic and and hopefully one that stimulates other people to sort of think and and have discussions yeah absolutely and you know what this means Chris we have to do a sister podcast episode on the Barbie movie. <laughs> the the philo- philosophical and moral imperatives of the Barbie movie. Well, we, I haven't seen the Barbie movie yet. What a great way to finish the podcast by imploring our listeners to both go and see Oppenheimer or read about Oppenheimer and also the Barbie movie. And I love your idea that we do another episode on that. But you know what? For now, let's call it a day. Thank you as ever, everyone, for joining us. As we've said in the past, our listenership numbers keep going up and up, but we're really keen to start building it to become an even larger community. So if we're going to ask one thing of you today, go tell a friend if you listen to this podcast or you find it interesting, and let's see if we can continue to build that community. We are on Twitter, Battling with Biz. We are on email. We would love to hear from you. Uh, whether it be your reviews of Oppenheimer and Barbie or your thoughts on leadership or topics we can cover, that's battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. But for now, maybe this is a good time to end it. So thank you for joining us. Uh, It's goodbye from me, Chris Kitchener. And goodbye from me, 